This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, check out our other podcast, Fiat Vox, about the people and research at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. My name is Janae Darden. I'm the East Oakland reporter at public radio station KALW. And we are the oldest FM station west of the Mississippi, and we deliver fresh sounds when it comes to news and content in the Bay Area and around the world. So make sure you listen to us on the 91.7 FM dial or online at KALW.org. And KALW is proud to be a media sponsor of tonight's event, and we thank Cal Performances for the opportunity. We're able to do this with member support, so thank you to our members. And you can learn about becoming a member on our website at KALW.org. Now, for what we all have been waiting for, I am so proud to introduce two amazing fellow black women journalists who will be in conversation tonight. Yes, Jamel Hill was born in Detroit, the great city of Detroit, and always knew, give it up for Detroit, Detroit in the house, all right, (laughs) and always knew that she wanted to be a journalist, and she was a sports columnist at the Orlando Sentinel, the Detroit Free Press, and the Raleigh News and Observer, and oftentimes the only woman in the locker rooms reporting on the teams. She went on to work at ESPN for 12 years as a senior correspondent and anchor of the flagship show Sports Center. Today, Jamel Hill is an award-winning journalist and staff writer for The Atlantic and host of the podcast Jamel Hill is Unbothered. You can listen to on Spotify. And yes, Ms. Jamel is very unbothered. <laughs> she is also known for being an outspoken commentator who is not afraid to speak her mind. Speaking truth to power, she explores the intersection of sports, race, and culture with the passion and veracity, even when it means challenging that certain person in the Oval Office. And all of this is one of the many reasons why Jamel was named the 2018 Journalist of the Year by the National Association of Black Journalists. Yes. And interviewing Jamel tonight is my colleague, Hana Baba, host of Cross Currents from KALW News. Yes. And co-host of the award-winning podcast, The Stoop, Stories from Across the Black Diaspora. And her work has won awards by the San Francisco Press Club, the Society of Professional Journalists, Northern California, the National Association of Black Journalists, and she was named a Bay Area African cultural icon by the California legislator. So, please give a big welcome to my colleague Hana Baba and our special guest for tonight, Jamel Hill. No, that's not my husband whistling because he can't whistle. So <laughs> thank you, whoever's whistling in here. <laughs> Hi. 
Are y'all ready tonight to just like, yes. So I know a lot of people have questions in their heads. You will get an opportunity after our chat to ask your questions. Hello, Jamel. Hello. How are you? <laughs> Welcome to Berkeley. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me, by the way. Have you been here before? This, this? is my third time here. Mm -hmm. um, the last time I was here, uh, I was here once to do, I, was a si I spent a, a season doing sideline reporting for college football. And it was Cal, it was when Keenan Allen was here. I know you guys are familiar with him. Mm -hmm. And um, he actually got hurt badly in that game. And uh, I think y'all lost if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Sorry to bring up, you know, negative memories. Uh, so I was here for that, and I think I was here for a, a different speaking engagement before. Mm -hmm. So this is, I'm getting a real taste of Berkeley. You know, walked around right. to the uh, campus today, so that was pretty fun. I think I blended in. You think? <laughs> I think. So I yeah, went to, what is it called, Super Duper. So I don't know how many. Um, had a burger mm -hmm. and some lettuce. All right. <laughs> it was <Yeah>. lovely. <laughs> So um, I think, you know, I want to I start at your beginnings. And you said before that growing up you weren't a talkative child, but you spoke up when necessary. Yeah. You were not a talkative child. When Hard to believe, huh? Um, no, I was, I, and this is despite what I do and what people know me as, mm. it, that's always been sort of my way. That doesn't mean I'm some kind of wallflower or a, shrink, a shrinking violet, but I think uh, sometimes it's important to conserve your energy and then kind of wait. I've always been an observer. So I'll kind of watch a situation and then when I feel, you know, like I need to summon Thor's hammer, I will. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm more strategic with it than And like anything. you've always been that way? Like, I've always been that way. Huh. That uh, more observer, because uh, you can, you know, learn a lot more by listening. Mm -hmm. What's the old adage? Guy gave you two ears for a reason in one mouth, hmm. right? So um, I always like to kind of watch and see how people are and react and just assess the situation that way. And then when I feel like it's necessary, I'll, I'll say something. But um, I oh, think you'll I'll, say something. I will, yeah. No, I will, I, will, I will. I don't have any problem with that. <laughs> this is anybody who's following me knows. But I just don't feel the need to do it all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes it's okay when did to just you fall back. Know you wanted to be a journalist because is it really since you were a kid? It was. I, I were was, you the curious little kid who wanted to know everything? <laughs> I was. I used to read a lot. I used to write a lot, uh, write a lot of short stories, mm. poems, that kind of thing. And um, I wrote these mini novels and uh, created sort of this world that I wanted to live in, if you will. Kept a diary, even though my mother kept reading it. Well, it was traumatic. <laughs> Uh, and not apologizing for it either, but uh, so um, so I did that that part of it, and again being a voracious reader. And then in high school, in like tenth grade, I sort of figured out I can combine the three things I like: I like to read, I like to write, and I love sports. Hmm. And um, did you grow up in a sports family? No, not particularly. I mean, my my stepfather um, he taught me a lot about playing sports, but. Sports was always something that I loved. I can't remember not loving it. And uh, baseball was like my first love. And, um, you know, kiddies back in the olden days, you had to actually read the newspaper to follow your sports teams. And so I would read the newspaper, follow my sports teams. You know, I was that kid on Saturdays. Uh, there was, uh, hopefully there's some people in here also 7,000 years old like me because uh, 
there was something called This Week in Baseball that came on every Saturday. And he, I would watch that and all the games that came on. And I would just sit there right in front of the TV and watching endless, endless baseball games, mm. which seems crazy. And no, I've not been stuffed inside a locker. I wasn't a nerd, but um, I definitely, um, you know, just kind of love sports. And I was a neighborhood tomboy. And so when I got to high school and I took a high school journalism class, it kind of all started to fit together. And it was in high school journalism that I went to a professional newsroom for the first time because the way that it works in Detroit is all the high school newspapers, once a month, the Detroit Free Press, which is one of two of the major uh, newspapers in Detroit, they put out an insert with all the high school newspapers in it. So Mm -hmm. everybody gets one page, all the city high school newspapers. So you have to go to the paper to put your your high school newspaper together. And Mm so the first time I was exposed to a professional newsroom, it was like... Bam, this is what mm. I want to do. Mm. It was people were crazy. They were yelling. It was like all this energy. And you I was like, ooh, it. what are they doing? And I want to do that. Uh-huh. And so I got hooked. And um, I've been at this since I was 15, 16 years old. And so it's been a tremendous, a tremendous ride. And sports journalism. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you're growing up. You're watching TV. You're reading the papers. You realize that this is a male journalist space. I was too dumb to know that. Um, I mean, I knew that, but I didn't know it. And uh, this is why whenever I talk about mentorship, I preach this to both mentees and mentors, is that the first thing you can give a mentee and the first responsibility as a mentor, you need to give them a sense of belonging, that -hmm. this is something that you have every right to do. And because I came down to the newsroom, the Free Press also had this apprenticeship program where they selected 10 Detroit uh, area high school students to come and apprentice at the paper for 10 weeks, uh, 20 hours a week. And I wrote an essay. I have no idea what I said, but it worked. And I was one of the 10 selected. And the very first mentors that I had that were assigned, they assigned every kid in the program two mentors. And I had two women, Johnette Howard and Rachel Jones, still friends of mine. And Rachel was a feature writer, and Jeanette was a sports writer. And from, from them, I got that sense of belonging. So I never knew that it was something I wasn't supposed to be doing mm-hmm. because if the very first person I knew that, do, that did it was a woman because I went with her when uh, to, she covered the Detroit Lions practice, and so that was my first time seeing a woman in that environment, and it was just all just crazy to me. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. And so because I got that early confidence um, you know, at the beginning of, of my career, I just never went through a period of, of self-doubt, which is totally normal for any woman in a, in a male-dominated space, especially a black woman. So I was very lucky that I got that, that sense of, of belonging early. And, and when you went into sports journalism um, and you were, you know, on the field, you were in the locker rooms, <laughs> You know, we spoke before uh, for our podcast called The Stoop, which you were going to subscribe to today, right? (laughs) And you're all subscribed already to Jamel Hill is Unbothered, right? Yes. 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 Um, So you told us a story about being a black woman reporting uh, in the locker rooms and that you felt protected. Can you talk about that? Well, and you have a story about Charles Barkley in particular, in terms of him being protective of you. Oh, oh, Chuck. I mean, 
you know, I didn't. Chuck. <laughs> I was like, oh, like, I didn't. Oh, you All mean right. Chuck? I was like, okay. Um, I mean Chuck. Yes. Well, no, it was. It wasn't Charles Barkley. I think the player you're thinking of. I'd got to know Chuck. Was it? It was uh, a guy named. Um, uh, he played for the Indians, and I will think of his name. Julio Franco. That's his name. Uh huh. If you're eight thousand like me, you know who Julio Franco. There's is. another story about Charles Barkley. <laughs> I, right. I have a ton of stories about Charles uh-huh. Barkley. <laughs> like, but I don't this know idea. If all meant for this room, but <laughs> I got a lot. But um, like being a woman. And yeah, a woman. I was an intern at the Plain Dealer in Cleveland, and. Um, you know, it was my first sports internship because before I actually started to do sports and, um, I knew I wanted to do it, but I got a lot of advice from those older, wiser who had built, you know, strong careers Mm. that I should do news first Mm. to give myself a really, you know, versatile, grounded training. And don't know if you heard this athletes sometimes commit crimes. So you, some, my first summer, as an intern um, at the Lima News in Lima, Ohio, which is about two hours outside of Detroit, I spent it covering cops the whole summer. Um, and only later to understand cops and football coaches are like literally the same people, but that's besides the point. Um, so, um, no disrespect to any football coaches that might be in the room, but, um, but it was good training and good background. So it, when I finally got a chance to cover sports, you know, I felt confident in, you know, sort of the things that I was doing, but I was covering the, the, the Indians, and this is in, uh, I was a, basically there to help the main beat writer, and this is in 1996, and the Indians were quite good. They had Carlos Barriga, um, uh, Kenny Lofton, Albert Bell, uh, who's one of the worst people I've ever met, but that's beside the point, um, but sort of the point. That locker room was terrible, um, you know, and it really... I knew after that experience that summer, I never wanted to cover baseball ever, despite the fact that this was what um, this was my first love. And so, you know, the players, they were just like kind of mean and just surly for a 95 win team. They sure acted like somebody pissed in their cornflakes all the time. And there was, you know, Albert Bell, for those who don't know, was a very volatile personality during Mm -hmm. those days. Uh, He had a very bad reputation with the media um, he did not speak to the media, and when he did, he <laughs> it was an event. Um, and so, this is the intimidated locker that I'm locker room that I'm walking into. And Julio Franco, older player on the team, I think he was 40 years old then, and um, he kind of took me aside and he looked out for me. Mm-hmm. And um, when the other guys wouldn't talk to me, he would give me quotes or he'd tell me like, you know, you should talk to that guy, ask him this. Very good guy and I never forgot that and sometimes whether you're a man or a woman that happens in these locker room dynamics is sometimes one or two players that'll look out for you and help that transition less so because the thing is that when you walk into these environments you're on their turf right this is the clubhouse they don't like reporters in there look we don't want to be there any more than they want us there we Mm -hmm. just are trying to do our jobs and that's it and when you come in these situations and I'm either one of three or all three at once where I'm either the only black person in there, the only woman in there, or the only black woman in there, or as I said, all three. Yep. And so you feel as if um, there's a spotlight following you everywhere you go. I'm trying to blend in, but you can't really blend in in, in that situation. So with reps, it took me some time to kind of get over that anxiety of being in the locker room. but Was there a point where you were like, I can't do this? No, because, you know, that's the thing about, um, I think in part me growing up where I did and how I did growing up in Detroit is 
failure was just not an option. Um, I don't do it. I'm not going back to Detroit. I'm not going back. Like, I, so it's just like I had to make it work. I'm not choosing anything else. I'm terrible at math. I don't like science. So what else mm-hmm. am I going to do? <laughs> so I have to make this work. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, there's some fire-breathing editor, you know, that's on my case. Oh, yeah. Right? And yes. so you can't go back to the newsroom and say, hey, I didn't get the story because I was a little too intimidated to go in the locker room. And they're already looking for reasons why women and women don't belong in sports, why they don't belong in locker rooms. I wasn't going to give them that ammunition. Mm-hmm. So I had to suck it up. But I often tell women who ask me the same questions that it's normal to feel anxious. It's normal to feel like you don't belong. But trust me, it does get better with time. Because hmm. you feel like the only. Yeah. I mean, it's an isolating place. I mean, as you know, is that um, when I was at the Orlando Sentinel and I was the uh, sports columnist there, my first you know, columnist job, and I was the only black female sports reporter or sports columnist, excuse me, um, at a daily newspaper in North America, not America, North America, that is not something to be proud of. Not for me. It's an embarrassment and indictment on the industry that I'm a part of mm-hmm. because I'm not the smartest black woman that ever played pro sports. <laughs> Definitely, you know, I'm not the best writer, not the best reporter. You know, I'm a right, but it's just like, <laughs> you know, you're not going to convince me I'm the only person that was deserving of that job. And so automatically... Just having that label, it lets you know that you're you're standing out and it lets you know what you're up against mm. at the same time. Mm. And that brings me to this question about, you know, you're talking about sports journalism, but journalism overall, like the numbers of people of color in journalism are, are still, you know, very <laughs> embarrassing. Um, you know, and there's talk about diversity. I mean, every conference we go to, mm. there's the diversity panel. And how do we get more people in journalism? Always second place at the place where it's already diversity. Right. Like, why is that conversation taking place at the National Association of Black Journalists Convention? All the black people we, are there. We've we have the white people right. who actually hire people. <laughs> I mean, we've been talking about this for so long mm-hmm. now. Why do you think it's not working? It's not working. So I used to have this belief that if they just found us, if you know they understood that there's a lot of us that are talented, just need an opportunity, things will change. They just have to get more vigilant about recruiting. Mm. And now in my old and surly 9,000-year-old age, notice I keep adding 1,000. It, it was seven. And, <laughs> it was seven eight. a minute ago. Now I'm at 9,000, right? I'll be at like 35,000 by the end of this. But um, I realize it's intentional. It is purposeful that they don't want to find us. Hmm. And it's heartbreaking because getting into this business, I got into it because I felt like I wanted to tell stories, I wanted to tell our stories, um, and I wanted to be one of the people that help contextualize current events. And you know, I wanted that feeling of 50 years from now when you crack open a newspaper, and I realize you guys don't even read newspapers now, but just go with me, um, that when you crack it open, and you see, you know, one of my stories and you're like, oh, so that happened, mm-hmm. right? Like we're historians at the end of the day to some degree. But uh, it is, I've realized that, you know, frankly, that it is on purpose. Um, there is no real desire, no real genuine desire to actually include us in this business. Or else they would have done what? They would have done it already. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, we've been having this conversation for decades. You know, this is like my 22nd year in the business all 22 years we've had this. And I wonder, 
whenever somebody uh, that's in a decision-making capacity comes to me and asks me for names, mm -hmm. for positions, I automatically, the first thing I ask, I was like, where have you looked? And usually... It's, and have you looked? And have you looked? Right. Right. That's or number are you one. sitting you and waiting for people to come to you? Right. So here, here's what doesn't happen. It's like, it's not the way some of these, you know, executives and editors act as if when, you know, they're going to hear, it's diversity. Like, it's not going to come knocking at your door. You have to go actually recruit it. You know, kind of like and you maybe do white people. That's what you got to do. You know, so, and, and if there's nobody ready to be recruited, you need to train them. Yes. Are you, are you ready to do that? Are, and not just train them. It's like groom them in that same way that we see them do with other people. Mm -hmm. And that just does not happen for us. For the most part, we have to network and just navigate a little differently. Because at this point, look, NABJ has been around 40 plus years. It's the largest black, it's the largest minority journalism organization in the country. If you're still asking yourself, where can I find black candidates? It happens every summer. We're in, you know where we are. It's 3,000 of us. So what's your excuse? So it's, it's thousands, thousands, thousands it's of black journalists in you have one to place. They have AAJA, same oh, yeah. organization, NAHJ. They have every minority. So what is your excuse? You don't have one. The excuse is you don't care. So I'm tired of giving them a break and, and gently having this conversation. I'm not going to have it general anymore. I'm just going to tell them, like, you don't care about diversity. So you can sit up here and have your fancy presentation about how it's so hard. Okay, that's great, but I know you're not trying. Have you been to an HBCU? You know, they kind of exist. Bunch of black people there, go find them. Like, they want jobs. I don't know. It's not that hard. You'll come to Cal. Will you go to, will you go to Howard? Will you go to Morgan State? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just like, it's, we're not, it's not rocket science. And why is it purposeful? It's purposeful because, um, much like a lot of things, journalism is only a microcosm of what we see in the rest of the sectors of society. There's four black CEOs at Fortune 500 current, Fortune 500 company. Four. Meaning the four brightest black people ever. Isn't that many white people that's that much smarter? So it's like, it's intentional, you know, and it's, um, I know people don't actually look at it that way because it sounds so harsh, but I can only guess that your intent is not genuine because I see how you recruit everybody else. I see how you groom certain people. Mm -hmm. So now I have to wonder, what is it that is keeping you from doing this? It's not access. It's not the fact that they're not out there. It's not the fact that you can't. It's just there's no willingness. Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard to fight your way in a system that was de never designed for you to succeed. It was never designed with you in mind. It's very hard to do that. So um, it's going to always be a challenge, I think, for people of color to fight their way in the industries. We have to fight. There have been allies certainly along the way that have eased this process, but it's just not enough. And so I've often challenged um, you know, editors and people in those positions uh, who think of themselves as allies that you know, are you really? Look at your Rolodex. Like, who are you taking to lunch every day? Mm. You know, who are you saying, yay, just stop by my office anytime? Who, like, who are, if there are people that look like you, then you ain't allying nothing. <laughs> you just saying it. <laughs> so I need to actually see it put into practice. Mm. Um, and you mentioned a little while ago that what you said might be cruel, or what did you say? You yeah, said it might be harsh. Harsh. You said harsh. Yeah, it might be harsh. And so let's get into that. Okay. Okay. Yes. Um, so you, again, just like Janae said, not afraid to speak your mind. You've been like that since you were little, mm -hmm. right? And you get back a lot of flack and you get a lot of crap. 
Um, Dude. How, well, first of all, uh, how do you, how do you not respond, but how do you take care of yourself in, in, in even like, um, you know, like, like uh, do you absorb all of this that's coming towards you or do you deflect it or what, like, what do you feel when you see all these people on Twitter? Like today I was on your Twitter, I was like, I don't know what I would do. Mm. But what does Jamel Hill do? <laughs> well, I mean, it is, I won't act as if sometimes it's not frustrating. It's not frustrating because I care what they think. It's just frustrating that sometimes people are just so dumb. It's just, <laughs> just I'm like, like did you walking around like this? Like, <laughs> mm. So that. Um, so you feel sorry for them? No, nah, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> is more like just bothered mm. like what um so there's that part of it and that's natural for anybody to feel that way but here's where I'm grateful to be 10,000 years old um <laughs> I'm grateful because I did not grow up with social media I'm a social media immigrant right and I think the people many of which I'm sure are in this room you guys grew up with it and because I knew of a life before Twitter, before Snapchat, when you had to leave messages on people's answering answer machines, mm-hmm. right? Where, you know, people not being able to reach you all the time was not considered some kind of crime of the state, you know? So growing up that way, it allowed me to have a much healthier relationship with social media because I could take it or leave it. Um, these people don't know me, I don't know them. Half the stuff that they say on Twitter, they never say to my face. Um, so I can't care too much about the opinions of people who, in the grand scheme of my life, don't matter. Um, of course, I'm on the other side of it. I think I receive a lot of love on social media and a lot of mm-hmm. support. And I've gotten to know some awesome people. I've gotten, ex- I've been able to be exposed to writers I never would have been able to be exposed to. And people are just generally funny. And um, it's opened up a lot of the world as well. So I try not to be the person, you know, or old woman yelling at cloud about social media. Cause I think there are some huge benefits to it. Um, but at the same time, you kind of have to just keep it in perspective. You know, I used to say this all the time and it still is a plot. It still applies is that, you know, um, you can go off on me or cuss me out or say whatever. Um, but you know, what happens twice a month, a paycheck happens. And it really doesn't matter. That paycheck's still coming, <laughs> regardless. So unless you're Jeffrey Goldberg, who is the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, I don't care. <laughs> so, or unless, you know, uh, you're Courtney Holt, president of Spotify, I don't care. So when those names are attached to an email or to a tweet, <laughs> then I don't care. <laughs> Other than that, right. you, mm. you're not stopping the, what I have going. So it's just sort of, you know, what is, what is the old adage? The lion does not care about the opinion of sheep. Mm-hmm. You know. All right. That's an old adage. Yeah. That's an old adage mm-hmm. for people 11,000 years old. That's an old <laughs> adage. I was fishing for that just a little right. bit. So, no, it, it did. I mean, I think it was a time. It comes with experience. Like, it wasn't like, uh, you know, when I was born, um, I immediately had this sensibility. Yeah. It unfortunately comes through uh, learning. And, um, you know, the first time I got some hate mail, I was in college 
and uh, you know, hate mail was a little more, arc, you know, archaic then. So this, whoever this person was, used to send me and a lot of the black staffers at my college newspaper used to write, you know, hateful, slur-filled stuff and put it on. You know, you go in the bathroom and they have that, uh, you know, the the paper towel, but it's not like real paper towel. It's like some cheap, you know, sandpapery <laughs> paper towel. So this dude was writing messages on those, you know, calling me all kind of names in the book, and yeah, it was very jarring. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I grew up in Detroit. I mean, the city was like 90% black. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd never been called any of the things that this person called me. And so it was a big awakening. Like, this is something that I'm going to have to deal with probably the rest of my, you know, career. And it started from college, and it just so happens that over that course of time, I learned how to deal with it. I don't like that I had to learn how to deal with it. I don't like that I have to tell other younger journalists, particularly women, that this is a part of the job that you have to accept because the owner should be on the jerk doing it, not on the people who actually have to be subjected to it. But um, but what do you tell young women, young journalists? I, I do have to tell them that. I hate, you know, I hate the thick skin speech. I really do because you, nobody has a right to dehumanize you and call you out your name because they don't agree with something that you, you wrote, said, or whatever. But at the same time, I have to tell them this is coming and not to internalize it. Whoever that person is that has that opinion, they don't know you. (laughs) They're just going by what they think is you. They're going by an opinion. They're pissed off about a lot of things Mm -hmm. that have nothing to do with you. Mm -hmm. And as hard as it may be, you have to teach yourself and constantly affirm, again, that sense of belonging. It takes practice. It's not something that you just are automatically born with. I think it's, it's... you get better with reps. You've done print, television, now you're in audio. <laughs> I mean, you've I'm done it all. <laughs> you're in our world. Yeah, yeah. welcome. Um, where do you find yourself more? Which, do you have a favorite? Do you have a place where you feel like you can do what you do better? Well, one of the reasons, uh, one of the reasons I left ESPN is because I wanted to be able to play in some different spaces. And what I love about this iteration of of my career, which is completely different than anything I've ever experienced. I mean, leading up to two years ago, I had only worked in corporate media. You know, I worked at ESPN for 12 years. I was at the Free Press for six years, the Sentinel for two. Like, I've only known that model Mm -hmm. of your paychecks coming from here every couple weeks, boom, this is what you do, this is the company, this is who owns that company. You know, I I sort of was in that mode. And even though uh, at ESPN, the beauty of being there is that you learn how to do a bunch of different things because they have their hands in everything. So there is where I first started podcasting. There is where, you know, I did radio, did television, wrote, like did all the things that um, you're required to do in today's media age as a journalist. You have to be a utility player. And once I left... Um, I wanted to be able to try some different things. So, you know, I wanted to write for The Atlantic, a publication that I had long read and respected. And Were there be- any terms when you came to The Atlantic people? <laughs> no, the, the only term they was like, that- Jamel, you could talk about anything, but... No, no, they have given me complete freedom. The only requirement was that I only write for The Atlantic, mm-hmm. and that was it. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than that, they have been amazing, and I've grown so much as a writer because it hadn't been something I'd done for full time full time in years. So to get back using that muscle again, 
it was it was great and and this is no disrespect to the television industry though you know when somebody says no disrespect disrespect is about to happen so um, no disrespect but, but the thing that was always startling to me about television is a lot of producers I worked with a lot of producers um, you know executive producers people like none of them were journalists and in a lot of cases you were with people who were younger than you that had never covered a team, that had never been in the locker room. Why that, were they there? Who were they? Because the producer track in television is much different. Oh. And I'm not saying this is 100% the case, but at least 70 to 80% of the case. is like you're working with, you know, younger kids who they understand the visual part of it, and but they don't understand the journalism or the storytelling part. So I... It was a challenge at times to work with people who were not as smart um, in that area that you needed them to be. Smart people in their own right, but not in the area of journalism, right? The Atlantic is a lot different. Uh, you throw a dart in there, and they've covered the White House 65 times, <laughs> or they've been a political correspondent, or they've covered wars, or they like the. The, the level of what those resumes look like was mm. different mm -hmm. to the point where I was like, I don't even know if I should be in here because I'm just a sports hack. Like, this is, you know, something else. Mm. But that part was the challenge, and I really enjoyed that, is being able to learn from people who knew so much more than me. And it was a gratifying feeling uh, to return to that. So I wanted to make sure I, I exercised the writing muscle because writing was always my first love. T television just kind of happened. And... And then radio, and then podcasting. and then podcasting, because I enjoyed it at ESPN, and now um, I always enjoy interviewing. You know, learning from people, talking to people, you know, pushing people in some cases, mm -hmm. having that dialogue. And because I've been able to build the profile I had, and the opportunity to sit down with some really compelling people across the spectrum of sports, <laughs> entertainment, politics, news, that was very appealing. Because podcasts, I mean, they're very intimate environments. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, most of you guys, when you subscribe to a podcast, you're choosing to spend a lot of time with it. And so, you know, the people that listen are really dedicated to hearing you and hearing whoever you have on. So I knew that was going to be a part of it. And then, um, again, the storytelling part. So, you know, me and my best friend from college, we started a production company mm -hmm. and we want to develop shows. We have two shows in development now. Um, we'll have some pretty big news coming on one of them soon, so Ooh. stay tuned. Um, and we wanted to be able to, to you know, tell stories and uh, really position, highlight, and, um, you know, give a platform to uh, women of color, black women in particular. So I'm able to do all of these things. And as mm -hmm. I often joke, I traded in six jobs, or I traded in one job for six, you know, so... Um, in addition to working on a book. So these are all things that kind of all different, but have synergy, I think. And with, you know, in addition to your huge platform, um, you're now very famous, you know, standing up to <laughs> 45, <laughs> right? Right. Um, do you feel, like, what kind of a responsibility do you feel? Does it feel heavy to have all of this? Or how do you... Uh, heavy is not How do you compartmentalize? What do you do? <laughs> heavy isn't the word that I would use. Um, I think I would, what I would say is that it's a, it's an honor, you know, because 
we all are standing on the shoulders of somebody else. And people who have gone through 20 times what I went through. And I put went through in quotes because, no, it does not make, would not make any person, citizen of this country feel good to have the White House calling for you to be fired and have the president say you're the reason that, you know, ratings have tanked and all that kind of stuff. But when I think about the totality of my life, the president saying that the White House calling for that is literally 1,200th on the list of things, of bad things that have happened to me. It wouldn't even rank anywhere in the top five. Hmm. And that's, it's not even close. And really giving it 1,200 is probably too much. Um, That you care about. That I care about because, I mean, you know, from where I came from, you know, growing up in Detroit, single mother, um, recovering, both my parents are recovering drug addicts. Um, you know, I'm going to try to say this as Christian-like as I possibly can. I don't care about Donald Trump. Like, I just don't. I mean, it's just like, all right, great. Glad to spell my name right in the tweet. <laughs> you know? But I just, you know, I don't care about him in the sense of caring about how he thinks about me. Yeah. I care about what he does because I'm a citizen and I pay taxes, <laughs> right? As we all should care from that standpoint. But what he says, what Sarah Huckabee Sanders said about me, literally, I don't care, you know? So um, it, did, it wasn't something that kept me up at night. It changed my life. It changed it because, as you alluded, my profile sort of exploded. And it changed just in the type of, a, of attention that I get now that is way different than it was before. Um, it more upset my life than anything. It didn't make me feel um, any kind of way about mm-hmm. what was said about me. Yeah. I didn't internalize any of that. It just, I had to adjust to more people knowing me. I had to adjust to the fact that there are, and I mean this literally, more people who want to kill me. So I had to adjust to those things. So you fear for your life sometimes? Um, I think I did when it happened because of the, the, not just the attention, but some of the response that I was getting. Like when I was at ESPN, I had to shut off my voicemail entirely. Like I didn't have voicemail there the last year or so that I was there because I just got like one quick sample of what was being left. And I was like, you know what? I don't even need this in my life. And I just told ESPN security to, to dismantle it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, just immediately when I went out in public spaces, you know, uh, me and, you know, my husband, we went to a Monday night football game uh, with his dad and another friend of mine, and we had to have security. So um, just in case, you know, the thing is, they know me, I don't know them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with some of them saying some of the things that they had, you just never know when somebody's going to jump stupid. And it wasn't until recently that I actually read some of the snail mail that I received during that time. And it was harsh. It was some bad stuff in there. And on Facebook, I've gotten plenty of death threats and that sort of thing. So it just upsets your life in that regard where it makes you a little more cautious about where you are publicly. Um, You've talked about how people, you say, are shifting away from information. You know, at the same time, there is so much information, but people are moving away from information. What, did, what do you mean by that? It's a confusing time because it feels as if there's this sentiment, and maybe it's because of stupid buzzwords like coastal elites or 
um, people suddenly making education sound bad. Mm. Like it's bad to be informed, which I don't quite get. And one of the things that's really changed in journalism is that when I first got into it, I think people were mostly in the mindset of when I turn into the news, just want to see what's going on, get updated on my day, okay, learn a few things, and that's it. But now, because of the emphasis of networks have changed, people go looking to confirm beliefs mm -hmm. as opposed to understanding what's happening. Mm -hmm. And as long as everybody's in that confirmation bias, then real information, it's harder for people to digest. Because if it goes against what they believe, they're just not going to believe it. And I've never seen such stubbornness and such a rush to be stupid and ignorant. I'm like, why are you proud of this? I don't understand. Despite the fact the facts can be right there. Facts. And I think a lot of it, um, I'm talk not talking about opinion, I'm talking about facts. I think a lot of it is that when you have leadership that lies so openly and um, has been able to build a cultish following, it becomes, it, it just really permeates kind of the rest of how news goes. So it's um, a very tricky time for everybody. And now you add in social media and the fact that there are active influences that come on social media to purposely misinform and to create noise and tension between groups. Um, I, I mean, there's going to be a number of books written about how this age of information was totally weaponized and contaminated to create and stoke certain things mm. in the populace. I mean, uh, I had an opportunity last summer to interview Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris, and um, she said something that really stayed with me when she was talking about the, the interference, not just in our election, but the interference on social media, is, uh, you know, she said something that's very true. The, the people that interfere on those platforms and disrupt those platforms, they went for the lowest hanging fruit. They went for the, for the one thing that they know this country has not healed from, and that's racism. They went right to that because they knew it would divide this entire country because it always has. And so um, when I see certain memes or things, um, you know, it, it's, it's frustrating as a journalist because I can write a piece that's 4,000 words, that's well-reported, researched, have all the facts, and all it takes is a Baby Yoda meme to kill it <laughs> with, like, something that's not even true. And you're like, wow, a meme can circulate, and people will believe the meme over the story. And so where is this going? Like, how do we, how do, what do we do? Um, I don't know if we're, you know, I think the horse has left the barn a little bit, mm -hmm. um, especially as you see media shrinking. There are fewer entities committed to actually doing real journalism and doing the tough stuff, the investigative stuff. There is, even though at every turn, you know, what investigative journalism has been able to add and give us as citizens, it's like we can't even, I can't even describe that. But at the same time, when you have constant messages that the media is to be hated, I'm not we are the enemy of the people, we are the Jamel. Enemy. I mean, look, the president called us the enemy of the state. Mm -hmm. And it's a message that's reverberated constantly. And people believe that. And they never think about the thousands of ways that real journalism has protected the citizens of this country. I mean, most of us got into it. I know I certainly did 
the majority of journalists never got into this expecting to make money. Huh? No, we knew we were signing up to be broke. <laughs> no, we didn't. <laughs> we did not. I mean, when I no. when I graduated from college, the average salary for a journalist was nineteen thousand dollars a year, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> I, my credit gonna be bad forever. <laughs> so I felt so good when my first job, I, uh, I made twenty two thousand. I'm like ahead of the curve, <laughs> right? So none of us actually thought we could make any money doing this. No. We, we just wanted to be watchdogs. Mm. We wanted to protect the public trust. And that's not to say that media should not go unchallenged. And that's not to say that media does not make mistakes because there are plenty. We just talked about the, the, uh, the diversity issue. There are clear blind spots. That being said, when you think about what journalism has done, you know, I think about Ida B. Wells. We wouldn't know about lynching and the pervasiveness and the awful horrors of lynching, if not for Ida B. Wells, who risked her life to report on that. Mm -hmm. And just, it's so many things um, that we can point to, and yet for journalists to be hated, it's, um, it's really very disheartening. Ida B. Wells, who else inspired you? Well, I mean, I guess just uh, bringing it a little more, you know, present day, um, you know, I guess I've been really fortunate that I've had a lot of, I mentioned the two mentors that I had before, but I've had a lot of people, because that's the thing is that, you know, you, you have mentors, but you collect them too, like along the way. I still remember as, um, you know, a young journalist in college, how much I idolized Michael Wilbon, mm -hmm. who later became a friend of mine. I wanted a career just like his, you know, to be old and cranky and working at the Washington Post. <laughs> as he did for 30 plus years, him and Tony Kornheiser. Um, so him and Washington Post columnist Donna Britt, who has become a, a friend. And um, there's a ton of people that I've admired and they're not all in journalism, you know, either. Uh, because I, you know, I think it's important that we find inspiration from every place, something that helps you, you know, kind of, you know, keep going. Mm -hmm. um, you know, right now I'm, I'm sort of, I'm almost finished with this biography on Coretta Scott King. And I feel awful because I feel like when this woman was alive, I did not appreciate her enough. I appreciated her. But reading her biography has been really life-changing because of the things she has gone through and some of the things she said. So it's like inspiration pockets for me are just kind of everywhere. Uh, you, you constantly have to remind people, at least on Twitter, uh, <laughs> that... The 49ers went to the Super Bowl when Kaepernick was with the team. <laughs> yeah. I do. What, why do you think well, that is? Uh, he's, a, the, <sighs> he's the NFL's shameful sin that they, I hope they never get absolved from, and I hope they're always reminded. And if I got to be that person... If I have to be that person to remind them I'm okay with that, and not just them, but everybody else. So early after the, the 49ers um, uh, clinched the uh, NFC championship, there was an NFL site that put out a recap of the game, and in the, the, uh, the headline, um, or the subhead as we call it, it's like headline and then a paragraph explaining you know, a little bit more about what the, the story is about. Mm. They said, oh, first quarterback to take the 49ers to the Super Bowl since 1994. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. You were uh, big. Did I, <laughs> did I miss that 
was, did I make up 2012? Because I could have sworn that they were. <laughs> that I saw a guy wearing a number seven jersey that like took them, you know, to the Super Bowl. You were swift to correct them. Yeah, and just even now, the, the NFL. It's a powerful ad. Has the Inspire Change um, ads that they're running, where uh, the Players Coalition, a group of players, uh, Anquan Bolden, Malcolm Jenkins, that they have been very vigilant, very committed to uh, criminal justice reform. And this is part of their work that they've done. And um, this is not to slight them at all because I think they've done fabulous work. But now the, in, the uh, NFL is running commercials about police brutality. And they ran one recently, um, I think it was today or yesterday, about uh, Botham John, the young man who was unfortunately killed in his own home, being black while home is a thing now, um, by a police officer. And, you know, as I tweeted, you know, when people are giving the NFL credit for running these Inspire Change ads, um, I'm like, I'm old enough to remember when a guy took a knee for one, y'all blackballed him from the league, but now all of a sudden y'all about police brutality. So... Um, what are they doing? What are they trying to do? What is this? They're trying to erase Colin Kaepernick. That's what they're trying to do by giving, shifting the focus off of him and shifting it um, to them pouring money, pouring these additional resources into social justice. Um, and that's not to say that what they're doing won't have some real tangible results. It probably will, and I hope it does. But at the same time, they need to be reminded that this, ca this cause you suddenly care so much about that you didn't before he took a knee in 2016, suddenly you care a lot about because of what he did, because he brought you to this point. Mm -hmm. And if you really were that serious about social justice and equality, then you would have him in your league, but you won't. <laughs> um, but then what is it really about then? Oh, it's, it's about the president. I mean, NFL owners are spineless. And the moment, I knew Colin Kaepernick would never play in the NFL the moment Donald Trump said his name. Mm -hmm. Would never play again. And Jerry Jones, uh, during Colin Kaepernick's grievance, this was in his deposition, he said that the president personally told him that this was a, quote, winning issue for him. One of the few things that a lot of people unfortunately agree with the president about is that Colin Kaepernick should not be taking a knee. So he knows every time he says his name that it is giving him a level of universal support that he's never that he doesn't experience usually. And so, what does that say about people in this country? Because, you know, I'm also old enough to remember that we just celebrated Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, birthday, commemorated him, and the same people. I saw talking about how great Dr. King was for being for his nonviolent protests. Also, the same people who think Colin Kaepernick doesn't deserve to play in the NFL and shouldn't be taking a knee. So, make it make sense. I don't understand. Um, but the NFL, I think, as we have seen the case with Muhammad Ali, as we have seen the case in a lot of history, 20 years from now, they will be telling a different story. They'll act like all of this never happened, just like Colin Kaepernick never took the 49ers to the Super Bowl. But there's Jamel's <laughs> tweets. so There are tweets, but... Look, they will be archived. Muhammad Ali, um, you know, people, the people that covered him, uh, a lot of them talk about this. And uh, you know, many of them are still alive. 
But that was, he was very hated. I mean, Dr. King too. I mean, leading up to his death, he was, he was um, two thirds of this country had an unfavorable opinion of Martin Luther King Jr. They believed that his uh, attempts for uh, equality and his work and social justice, all of that, were doing more to hurt race relations than help it. Mm -hmm. So I challenged people in those moments because the only thing that changed is that he was right and history proved him right. It's the only thing that changed. It's the same with Muhammad Ali. History proved him right. And I wonder why do we always have to wait until it's proven? Mm -hmm. You know, in the moment where it's crucial, where something's really at stake, that's the time to say, I'm going to move my chips to, to this number here. Mm-hmm. So if <laughs> history has already proven Colin Kaepernick right, but there's still this resistance, like, uh, you know, he shouldn't be kneeling and, oh, my God, in a league where people who hit women and people accused of raping women are able to play, the dude that actually stood for social <laughs> justice is black man. We don't have a lot of time left, but I want to get some hopeful thoughts as well. From I, know, I feel like I've been Debbie Downer this whole time. No. I promise I'm optimistic. You know, um, I think a lot of people who follow you and follow your Twitter, you know, me included, really appreciate you, you know, speaking truth to power and being, you know, this fearless um, challenger to people at the highest levels, you know, and appreciative of that also I must say uh, envious sometimes of it of the ability to do to do that okay but also sometimes I'm like what are you also excited and happy about right now Jamel Hill 2018 I was in that room when they when you got the journalist of the year award <laughs> yeah. at the National Association of Black Journalists <laughs> and the room was like like electric when you, you gave your speech, and it was very inspiring. And, and that was a time when, you know, a lot of people in that room were feeling down, right, about the state of journalism in this country. What gives you hope today? What are you excited about and not bothered about? <laughs> well, uh, what gives me hope is this room, is... One of the reasons I love covering, uh, I love coming to universities and, and different campuses, is because the most optimistic people are here, because y'all don't know any better, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> so I can feed off your energy and your idealism, your, you know, just strength. I mean, a lot of you possess a lot of strength you don't even know you have, and people like me who are twelve thousand years old. <laughs> are we? Are we at twelve? We're at twelve. Okay. So um, we need to be reminded that there is hope. Mm-hmm. That the stupid people have not won. <laughs> and so you know, college is a like I had the best years of my life when I went to to Michigan State. Not just because I made okay Spartans. I see you all go white. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, I had the best years of my life there. Not just because. Um, you know, it was in college and freedom for the first time, but I met some of my best friends there. But mostly it's where the um, the fires of, of critical thinking started mm. is there. Because in college, like you'll never probably be exposed to this many people, depending on what field you go into, from this many different backgrounds, all in one place, 
all with kind of a very similar goal mm-hmm. of trying to make it whatever it is. And so right now is an opportunity for you all to take advantage of, of so much. I mean, you might. But it can be scary, right? It can, it can be, but it's exhilarating. Scary, being scary and afraid is exhilarating if you think about it because mm-hmm. it's the possibility of you actually pulling it off. Mm-hmm. Like you might actually do it, you know, which is which should be the exciting part for you. And at this stage, I know y'all broke. I get it. But you also kind of don't have to pay any bills to a little bit. Of, like, you can let them slide a little bit at this age, you know. <laughs> it's like, you know, you, uh, a lot of you don't have kids. You're not married. Mm-hmm. It's so many decisions that you can make, you know, purely for you. So it should be as equally exciting, if not more exciting, than it is fearful. The fearful, the fearful part shouldn't exist. You have a blank canvas, right? You know, so... Um, that is part of the energy that I get from going to colleges and university, realizing that hope is not lost. And I do think the generation behind me is gonna, has already gotten it so much quicker than mine did. And I think that's all most of us can be in it for. You just hope the people that are behind you, that they just wind up being better than you. And so when people come up to me and say, I want to be just like you, I was like, no, you don't. You want to be better than me, because you can be. Way better. So... I'm not sure where the person is who's supposed to let me know that. Do how much how much time we have left? <laughs> Should we keep going? See, I got, okay, I can keep going. You're broadcasting. Let you me have tell a you. Clock in your head. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will keep going until somebody says something to me. <laughs> says the voice from the darkness. Okay. Nine oh six. Okay. All right. One last question, sure. and then we'll go to audience. Um, you know, when you're in your podcast, it feels like, you know, you're talking about all of these issues and politics and culture, but it feels to me, it just feels like it's a different space for you, almost like a refuge a little bit when you're talking to some of these like celebrities and is that, is that a place for you where you are able to kind of just slow down and and, and, you know, get away from the negativity? <laughs> no, it is. I mean, it's it, part of the reason that the guests that I have um, cross the spectrum that they do. I mean, for example, um, you know, Monday's podcast was with Michael Eric Dyson, you know, my Detroit homie. Uh, about Jay-Z. Yeah, about Jay-Z. And we have Obama's, Malcolm X. I mean, we went across the board. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Hope you had a dictionary if you listened, because he knows very big words <laughs> and um, that are, you know, multi-syllable words. But um, so he was Monday, and the one I dropped today is with Jackie Christie the, uh, on Basketball Live, right? And so everybody's like, "What? You went from, you know, academic to ratchet in a minute?" Yeah, I did. <laughs> That's the beauty of it, right? Um, so I just like interviewing people, talking to people, learning from people. And you, you just go, this is who I want, this is who I want, go producer, get me the person. Yeah, I mean, amazingly, that has not worked with Michelle Obama, though. I'm still, <laughs> or Beyonce, or Rihanna, like, none of those three is, doesn't quite work that way with those three. But, but like, you have a wish list. Oh, or, yeah, I just named three. Mm-hmm. Serena Williams, that would be one as well. Um, and, I mean, I guess Barack could drop by, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> 
um, as long as you know Michelle slide it first. You know, so, but <laughs> they come together too. They could, they yeah. could. But I kind of just want her. But that's okay. No, <laughs> 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 so, but um, in all seriousness, mm. it, the the guest list is is a lot of people I want to talk to, and it's not based off whether or not I actually agree with them or not. It's based off like, is this person interesting, and do they have something to say? And Granted, I have my limits and standards because it's certain people that will never, unless it's an act of God, Candace Owens, make my podcast. <laughs> Ever. You know, so Richard We don't want to know that list. No. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'll tell you, but I'm just saying, like, I think it's people that's obvious, you know, like, because yeah. I, I won't, I mean, what I won't do is give stupid a platform. But what do you want to do with the podcast? Um... Well, what I, what I like to do, like the favorite compliment I always get is when people say, you know, I thought one way about this person and I came out thinking another way. So one of the favorite podcasts I did was with Cat Williams. And I didn't know what to expect with Cat Williams, right? <laughs> I didn't know if he was going to come in there like Pimp Prodigals. I didn't know what was going to happen, right? <laughs> and he was one of the most thoughtful guests. And uh, he had quite a story, mm-hmm. you know, to tell. And he's been through a lot. He ran away at 13. Um, you know, he grew up in, uh, and he ran away at 13 because he wanted to run away. You know, he grew up in a household that was heavily religious, Jehovah Witnesses, and he got tired of it. And so at 13, he hitchhiked to Florida with a dog. And I was like, how? See, nobody knows that. Yeah, that's, that's what I learned. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, really, with a dog? Mm-hmm. How? <laughs> you got to worry about feeding yourself. Now you got another one? Okay. <laughs> All right. So, and um, then you're also surprised sometimes too. Kill, the Killer Mike episode at the end. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> have you guys heard that? You guys have to hear the Killer Mike episode at the end where he messes with her. Yeah. But he F was me. I'm bothered. He was dead serious. <laughs> yes. He Three was. words in our business we call this a tease: Runaway Negro Creek. That's all you need to know. And go listen. Everybody. And now you need to now, now you got to go listen. But Killer Mike is somebody. I probably disagree with Killer Mike on sixty percent of the things mm-hmm. that he says. But I like the way his mind works mm-hmm. because it's genuine. It comes from a real place. And um, I think he's, he's sharp. He's astute. And uh, he's a hell of an artist. But that's like, his, his, to me, his rapping, as good as it is, takes a back seat to just kind of the critical thinker that he is. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's why I started doing this podcast. I wanted people who were just like the trigger word in the, the title of the podcast who were unbothered. And Killer Mike fits that. You know, Cat Williams fits fits that. Michael Eric Dyson, Jackie Christie, all the people that I've had. I mean, it's a ton more. Lakeith Stanfield, who I had on last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all fit that mode of people who have been able to make it by being their most authentic selves. And even if you don't do the same thing that somebody does, you everybody can appreciate authenticity everybody so and you feel it and you know it when you hear it. you do and, and so. you have it Jamal Hill thank you very much <laughs> thank you talk forever but let's get some audience questions where is the microphone oh they turned up the lights okay i see one way in the back Hello. right there this woman in a pink yeah stand up yes way up there 
there we go. You had okay. talked about being one of three in the room, whether that being black, being a woman, or being a black woman. What do you think is the importance and impact of being one of the three um, in, in the realm of storytelling and moreover in journalism as a whole? Well, I mean, for me, it's a, it's a great impact um, because I think, you know, there, and, and I understand this, there are, there are some people who believe, and it's not wrong, it's just, I, I, I just think a different way is that whatever they enter into, they need to leave whatever they are at the door. I think you bring it through the door with you because it's part of the thing that makes you special and makes you unique and makes your perspective different. And the thing you bring with you through the door is not always just your blackness or just being a woman. It could be the fact that you're from Montana. It could be the fact that uh, you grew up middle class. It could be uh, the fact that you grew up in poverty. It could be the fact that you grew up upper class. Whatever it is, uh, those collection of traits, bring them with you through the room because that's why you're there. And so whatever room I entered, being in journalism, I wasn't... The, it, it used to be, we used to laugh about this, but every year for a while at NABJ at the conference, inevitably it would be a session called, are you black or are you a journalist? And it's like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, and we would laugh about it all the time. Like, really? Because, you know, yeah. uh, it's not like uh, you get pulled over by the cops. they like, oh, I saw that notepad. You a journalist? I'm profiling. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you're black. <laughs> so that's the first thing. Um, so at any rate, uh, that's just my long-winded way of saying that, you know, don't be afraid to bring those things with you because, um, ultimately it's okay to, to lean on them to, for a broader perspective or perspective you're adding to the place that probably needs it. Always needs it. Mm-hmm. Uh, hello. You can pick cause I don't want this responsibility. Oh, okay. I see this young man here and that looks like a Him? San Francisco cap. Okay. All right. Right there. <laughs> uh, I got two questions, but you can just answer the first one if you want. I want to, because they both have racial thing undertones that people don't usually think about. I want to ask you about Barry Bonds and not making the Hall of Fame Ooh, yeah. and what his chances are. And then I want to ask you about uh, teams leaving Oakland and Oakland being like one of the yep. most working class, like diverse, like cities, t- towns, and like the whole country, but teams leaving Oakland and like going over to the other side of the Bay or to Vegas. And what your kind of thoughts are on that. Okay. Um, Can I do a quick thing? Sure, go ahead. So Janae, who came out here to introduce uh, us at KLW, she is, where are you, Janae? Oh, her podcast. Yes. So she was a a reporter on a project by KLW News called Bounce, the Warriors last season in Oakland. And we did uh, a whole reporting project on what that leaving the city Mm -hmm. did for the city, the neighborhoods around it, the businesses around it, and uh, you guys should check it out. It's called Bounce. Yeah, good plug, definitely. So I will speak from the general perspective of somebody who's from Detroit and who has seen a lot, well, a lot of what's happening in Detroit is happening in Oakland. Gentrification, pushing people out, um, acting like the people who put their blood and sweat equity into this community don't matter anymore. So I greatly, I overstand that. One, Barry Bonds is never getting in the Hall of Fame. It's tragic. To me, it, it delegitimizes the Hall of Fame for Barry Bonds not to be in there. You can't have arguably the greatest hitter of this generation not in the Hall of Fame. And especially, I'm going to really lose my mind if Kurt Schilling makes it and he doesn't. 
And, you know, and I realize the Hall of Fame is not the Hall of Good Guys, because Ty Cobb's in there. So I understand this, right? That's so true. He's so, that's so true. Kurt Schilling, terrible person. But besides the work, um, terrible person, great, great playmaker, great performer. So, but it's just the hypocrisy of that would bother me more so than Kurt Schilling actually making the Hall of Fame. So he's not making it. I don't think they're going to, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like a Colin Kaepernick deal. I just don't ever see what will happen. As for Oakland, uh, I think I, I was talking about this earlier today with somebody. I have a, a really good friend of mine. I think maybe you. I have a really good friend of mine who's from here. So I know about town business. <laughs> and so she's a Raider fan. And I told her, you know, if I were you, the day the, the Raiders left this city, I would never root for them again. Um, going to Vegas was purely a money move. Um, think about this. You know how many years? I mean, it was like 30-something years before an NFL franchise moved. And then all of a sudden, you had three teams moving in like two years. And they're all money grabs. The owners, by the way, as the way this breaks down, they get $11 million each. Um, when, when Oakland moved to Vegas, they got $11 mil each. Um, it was spearheaded, you know, obviously by Mark Davis, but also Jerry Jones. <laughs> and, you know, Vegas, uh, it's tough because I know so many fans that love the Raiders and that want to see them succeed. But it's hard for me not to wish bad things on them because I think what they did was, was weak. It was weak. And a lot of these teams, they hold communities hostage by saying, oh, by always uh, threatening to leave, trying to pay, you know, it, it, the same people that want to sit there and lecture us about bootstraps are the first ones to take corporate welfare. First ones, right? <laughs> Which is, you know, amazing. They want to come to the taxpayers. They want to bleed them dry. They don't want to pay for their own stadiums. They want you to pay for them. And then when you don't, then they want to leave. And it's, it's a sickening um, cycle and I wish I could say it's going to end in sports but I think it's only going to get worse because there are so many fan bases mayors people that just are they so thirsty for these teams to come there that unfortunately it's more teams more cities that will accept them than that will you know kind of stand up to them so um, I'm very sad with what's happened in Oakland uh, especially as the city continues to get horrendously gentrified then you're, when teams move, you're basically in some way um, giving them not just an inferiority co uh, complex, but telling the citizens there that they don't matter enough to have something like the Warriors representing them on a national stage. So, Do you think the Warriors are cursed now, the Oakland curse? I know some of y'all hope they are, but, uh, you know, uh, Clay and Steph going to get healthy, and they might have a number one pick, so... I don't know if that curse is going to hold up, but and it's, look, I mean, yeah. Draymond went to my alma mater, you know, yeah. so, and I love Steph Curry. I hate, I don't want to wish bad things on them, but I understand if you do. Uh -huh. I do. I do. <laughs> All right. Uh, somebody else. Go ahead, Jamal. Why? Well, I got to do the picking. I mean, okay. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, she's bringing a microphone to you just so you know. So I wanted to ask you about balance. Like you said, you grew up a tomboy and you're in these spaces with like all these men and male athletes. You kind of have to 
make them feel comfortable and you're one of them, but then on the same token, you kind of like uh, you've held black men in particular accountable. Like uh, I think the Lonzo Ball situation, uh-huh. and then you had um, Toronto Burke on your podcast as well. Yes. And so I was wondering, like, is that difficult to balance between like kind of just being one of the guys and then holding those same guys accountable? Oh, I mean, just not even a gender thing, just as a black person. It's, it's hard for me to criticize black people in public. I'll be honest, like, I struggle with it. When I had to write that column about how I disagree with Jay-Z's partnership in the NFL, that hurt my soul, <laughs> you know? But I had to do it because I just didn't think what he did was, was right, you know? I disagreed with it. That doesn't mean I question his blackness or what he's meant to the community or the icon that he is and or anything like that. But on this particular move, I thought it was the wrong move. But that never feels good because ultimately you're giving entry to other people who aren't a part of the community, who don't understand the community, who aren't in on these conversations on a regular basis, they then feel empowered to repeat what you've said and say worse, right? So that part is difficult, but at the same time, as difficult as it is, now taking it back to gender, you mentioned Toronto Burke, who I had on my podcast, and she was phenomenal, is I also know as a black woman, nobody's here for us. Um, And I don't want to sound um, like I'm overgeneralizing, but allow me to generalize to make a point in the sense of why this struggle in particular is worse for us is, you know, you mentioned um, how that dynamic is when you have men in our community who are also abusing us. And when we speak out against that abuse, then we're called traitors. So that's why I said, I will gladly be called a traitor to stick up for another black woman because nobody else is going to do it. Um, So, you know, I am especially um, black men who abuse other black women. I mean, we all know the R. Kelly situation is like kind of the most recent example is part of the reason why R. Kelly was able to be a predator with full support for three or four decades is because he was victimizing black girls and nobody was going to stand up for them. And my challenge always to black men is that you should want these people out the community too. And I know that we all as black people, it's hard because we know how the world perceives black men. We know what they go through. We, we all understand that, but we can't lean on that and say, it's okay if, there are predators within our community that they are able and allowed to unchecked, unchallenged, um, and you know, just able to prey on black women. We can't do that. It may not feel good to cast out another black man. It may not feel good to criticize one, but we cannot let that go down. Um, So I realized I don't make any friends, you know, when I do that. And I have been called, um, just as as much as I've probably been called the N-word, I have been called every manner of coon there is, and Uncle Thomasina, um, all of them. (laughs) um, But uh, it's worth it for me because I know that the person I'm really looking out for is just a black woman who will never receive that level of support. And you're actually supporting blackness when you yes yes of course I mean it's and that's why it's always 
it's kind of heartbreaking to see. I remember when um, when I was critical of Floyd Mayweather, and I'm not telling anybody don't watch the fight. Though you crazy to pay a hundred dollars for pay per view, but that's okay. <laughs> um, saying you know don't do that, but if you choose to do that, that's fine. But um, you know, whenever I wrote or said something critical about him, the the Floyd Mayweather stands are some of the worst people, just in terms of what they were saying, you know, to me about it and accusing me of taking down a black man and what about so and so and this and that and I'm like, all right, well, that's fine, but you're also saying in your response to me that you are perfectly fine with Floyd Mayweather hitting black women. He's gone to jail for it. Okay, so we're not even disputing whether or not he did it. He did it. <laughs> and there's no alternate facts. There's no alternate facts. And anybody who knows anything about domestic violence is that you know how hard it is to get a celebrity to go to jail for domestic violence? Mm-hmm. So you have to ask yourself, how bad was it that he went to jail? So anyway, I appreciate your question. It's difficult, but it must be done. I feel like I have a podcast plug-in every time you say something because uh, the episode before last on The Stoop is called All Black Everything, and Mm. it explores the idea of critiquing blackness and whether we can afford to do it and when we should do it and what happens to people who do do it. Um, let's take another... Well, hold on. All right, right, you want me to do it? All right, we'll go to to the middle. How about... This, yes, you with the two hands. That's right. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Thank you for coming, big fan. Can you talk about, and or I guess my question is, how have you managed being a black woman with... Um, Hair, obviously, and and when you walk in these different types of rooms, obviously, we know as black women, our hair is automatically politicized. So think about when you walk in that room as a reporter, what style are you wearing? I think you have maybe micro braids right now. I can't tell. Okay, yes. I got braids. I peeped that right now. So how have you managed (laughs) that throughout your career? And like I was recently talking to Chenea Gumike about how maybe at ESPN, Mm -hmm. is there a budget for black hair or the people who... (laughs) Man, she said a budget. Right. (laughs) You, <laughs> you have black women on TV, right? But are the people who are supporting you to get you ready for television, and obviously you spend a lot of time on television mm-hmm. ESPN, taking into account what that means to have a person of color on television? All right, so... Y'all uh, need to get into radio where it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you that look like. True. That is true. Mm-hmm. But um, So the, the person who pointed us to the North Star at ESPN was had a storm. Mm-hmm. Because before... When I first got to ESPN, they did not have hairstylists at all. So you were on your own. Hannah got there, changed the game. And they brought in hairstylists. And slowly all that changed. And then they not only brought in hairstylists, then they brought in hairstylists who knew how to do black hair. So ESPN is in a great situation from that standpoint now. It wasn't always that way. As usual, it takes women speaking up. It takes um, some difficult conversations with some people. And frankly, it takes, uh, when you, uh, this is the thing of, of how it works in television. If you have enough zeros in your contract, you can pretty much demand what you want. Hannah Storm had enough. That's why she could get it done where I couldn't, right? And I even never thought to ask it because I was super low on the totem pole with my two zeros. <laughs> so, 
It was they weren't gonna listen to me, but they would listen to her. And I always appreciate women who do things like that who make it better for everybody else. When you got the juice, um, as a, a, a buddy of mine, uh, Jim Rome told me once, uh, sometimes you the hammer, sometimes you the nail. And so when you the hammer, you have to swing it. And I appreciated that she did that for the rest of us. In terms of your hair being a conversation, so as I mentioned, television just happened for me. It was not, I went to school with a, I went to school, majored in journalism, print journalism in particular, with no intention of ever doing television. Um, and then when I was at ESPN, I started to get more television opportunities, started to get better at it. It kind of went from there. And then, oh, I also saw when they gave Matt Lauer a new contract, and it was $25 million a year. <laughs> and I said, to be on TV, I'm in. So, <laughs> um, so that being said, because TV was something I could take or leave, because it was never a part of my vision board anyway, I told every agent that I had, if they ever come to you and say something about my hair, I promise you that's the last day I'm going to be on air. And it was never a conversation for me. However, with many a black, many a black woman in local markets, in smaller places than ESPN, it is unfortunately a conversation. And it's worse there because they don't have the leverage to really say anything. Because when you're making your way and you have this on-air job that you need in order to get to the next step, and if the general manager or... Um, the person in charge of your show, the producer comes to you and say, we need you to change your hair. Then you, in that moment, I don't judge any woman who decides to do it because you're trying to get to a place. I judge the people who ask you to do it more so than anything. So um, unfortunately, it is a conversation, not just for women, but for black men too, black men with dreadlocks. It's a huge conversation. You know, this kid at NABJ um, once asked me, he had dreadlocks. Nice, neat, well-kept, great style, handsome, looked good. He said that multiple people at his station had told him his hair was a distraction. And he was wondering where to cut it. And I was like, I really, I hate myself for telling you this. But if you're willing to walk away, that's one thing. But you know you can't afford to walk away. So for now, unfortunately, you have to cut it. If that's what they're telling you. And it was such a sickening feeling to have to tell him that. But it was the truth of what he faced. I was like, but here's what you can do. The next time you get in a position, particularly if they have put enough zeros in that contract, you grow your hair long as hell and dare them to do something about it. <laughs> so uh, it's unfortunate, but um, you, much like with any battle you're, you will face in corporate America or in those environments, or in high you school. have to decide, yeah, or in high school, right? The kid in Houston. That's right. Yeah, and they're gonna sue, and um, they should. And it's Houston. It's yeah. like I mean, it's thirty miles out, but still. I mean, yeah. I mean, ain't Houston, Houston, it's, but it's Houston. It's, <laughs> it's but 20, yes, it's twenty twenty. I mean, the fact that the California was the first state to pass the the ban the discrimination on that. Right. Like, we have to have it. That's what that just says it all that right. that has to be in place. So, Whew. one last question. All right, that way. Yeah, I think we should. I think my man right there. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. You twelve thousand years old, just like me. Come on, or thirteen. Sorry. <laughs> oh, wait, one wait. second, sir. One second. One second. 
That's right. Don't fall. Get that cardio in. <laughs> All right. Uh, as a uh, black woman and having been in sports journalism, can you riff a little bit about the networks using certain African-American popular athletes with personality and Stephen A. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to entertain people when there are probably so many other commentators with insights that don't have that personality that seems to be the black personality. Mm. Ooh, all right. Are they, are they, <laughs> Ooh, are they hiring blackness they to entertain? Blackness um, to entertain. Wow. That's, I mean, that's a bar. That's what you're saying, <laughs> sir, right? Mm -hmm. So here's the way it works in TV is that they're going to hire former athletes. That's just, you know, the way it is. Playing experience makes sense, obviously. I don't know necessarily. They do look for certain types because they're looking for certain types within the construct of what works. Television is a copycat industry. And as much as these producers like to act like they invented television, they didn't. They just follow what somebody else did and nine times out of ten doing it worse than the original. But so here's what happens when something becomes successful. They then look for those archetypes. So to give you an example, when me and my former co-host, Michael Smith, when we got together, <laughs> I was just talking to him today, in fact. I'll tell him you guys said hi. Um, so when we first started, as good a chemistry as we thought we had, nobody would put us on air. And they wouldn't put us on air together, or they would in little pockets, but they didn't really give us a chance. And one producer, black producer, said to us, y'all think alike. That's why y'all won't work. He wasn't saying we think alike because we actually think alike, and anybody who watched our show knows that we didn't because <laughs> we argued as good as we could. Right? What was he really saying? What he was really saying is you see two black people around the same age, even though Mike is like 8,000 years old and I'm 14,000, but you see two black people around the same age, and nobody's going to buy that you think differently because of the way you guys look when you're at a desk. It's like, uh, two black people, they probably think the same. Um, fast forward to the, the reason they were saying that because at the time what was popular was black versus white. You had Skip and Stephen A. You had Mike Wilbon and Tony, Tony Kornheiser. Black, white. Even though Michael <laughs> said that the greatest part about PTI, which is the most successful commentary show in ESPN history, the, 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 the trick of the show, or at least the thing that people don't get, Mike and Tony the same dude. They just, they old dudes that hate everything. <laughs> and the same guy, right? But just one is black and white, they both bald, but like they, you know. It's, but you see the physical difference, so it's easier to sell to people. And we had to overcome that. And so it's the same now is that, uh, you know, first take, they're playing off a visual dynamic of white guy, Max Kellerman, Stephen A. Smith. White guy, black guy, it works. And that's not to at all belittle or diminish the, the respect, uh, the, the success the show has had, because it's, it's insane. I mean, it's, you know, probably the most, at least definitely in the morning, the most popular debate show in the country. And what did Fox do? Skip Shannon. Black guy, white guy. It works, right? So when they see certain types successful, 
they try to find that type again, mm -hmm. as opposed to exposing you to a new type or a different type. Because everybody can't be Stephen A. We don't have that vocabulary and penchant for a not indoor voice. <laughs> everybody can't do that. But, you know, that, that is how television operates is once they see it and it's successful, they try to do it over and over again. And it takes really daring people, it takes creative people to break those archetypes that they have. I mean, the only reason Mike and I ever wound up on television is because we won the war of attrition. No executive came to us and said, I got this bright idea to put you two on TV together. Mm. It was... You know, Mike was on, he was hosting Numbers Never Lie with uh, Hugh Douglas and, and, and Jalen Rose. And even that was built off the, it was built off the mold of first take. Two people debating, even though Mike is not a moderator. I mean, he was the host and part of the discussion. Two people debating, football guy, basketball guy. Different, football guy, basketball guy. So that was what they, it was built on. And Jalen left the show to do NBA Countdown. <coughs> They were scrambling for a third person. Um, Mike had told them before they even started Numbers Never Lied that he wanted to work with me. And they said, all right, cool. So here's a blonde we're going to have you work with. A friend of mine, Carissa Thompson. We're going to have her and we're going to have him. And he's like, "These are, he, the two people he wanted to work with most were me and Bomani. Mm -hmm. So imagine how ahead of the curve that you could have been. We all got our own shows later on. Mm -hmm. But what was selling in, it was... You know, and it's sort of a disservice to the people in these jobs because they're 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 very talented. It was blonde teeing up other athletes and commentators. Mm. Blonde always worked, right? So it was kind of the same thing. And then eventually, um, you know, they asked me to do Numbers Never Lie, and it was good. And Mike and I then we it changed into his and hers, and that was that. It wasn't. You know, which obviously eventually became the six, but it was no, there was nobody like us on, on television. And then it was funny because while we were there, we were like, oh, so now everybody want a woman and a man on the show. That's hilarious, <laughs> considering all the stuff that, that we had to encounter and face um, to get where we got. But, um, yeah, to answer your point is that, you know, television in that regard is, is very constructed to fit what they feel like people will emotionally react to. That's why audio is better and podcasts are awesome. No, just kidding. It is. Uh, Jamel Hill is unbothered. Make sure you're subscribed and you Spotify. tell everybody. <laughs> You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.